Hello listeners, it's Peter Ayers. I, uh, I wanted to start this episode by sharing some news. Uh, I think it will delight you very much. It's, it's certainly made my day. Um, the Australian Podcast Awards will be held on May 18th and Stages, the podcast we love and that has talked to a huge cast of wonderful people, is a finalist in the Best New Podcaster category. Uh, we're nominated with five other very worthy nominees and we're very much over the moon about the recognition. You know, I, I keep saying we because Stages, like any theatre, is a collaborative effort. I prepare each episode, I line up the guests and I finish it off with post-production, all from the mighty Wyndham studio, in other words, my living room. However, uh, each episode is just me, the guest, and you, the listener. Together, we create Stages. So congratulations. I know we all look forward to the awards ceremony in May. It's all very impressive. I encourage you to jump online to the Australian Podcast Awards and check out the immense talent competing for the gongs. And as always, thanks for listening. And now, on with the show. Although portrayed as TV's Mr Nasty, Craig Revel Horwood is anything but. He's a wonderful raconteur, a generous spirit and a thoroughly charming bloke. That's not to say that he doesn't enjoy playing the role of villain, as evidenced by examining his CV. Countless pantomimes in the UK playing evil dames, a lead role in the fourth instalment of the Nativity film series, and his return to the West End in a celebrated production of the musical Annie, playing the gin-soaked top dog of the orphanage, Miss Hannigan. Horwood is a jack-of-all-trades and a master of them all, a career beginning in Australian musical theatre in productions of West Side Story, La Cage and Sugar Babies has seen him extend his creative talents into the West End on Crazy For You and Miss Saigon as performer and resident director, eventually claiming the creative positions of choreographer and director on productions around the world in his own right. Gigs at the Lido and the Moulin Rouge in Paris prove his versatility and the range of his talents. But the role that has brought him universal attention and unwanted celebrity is that of the acerbic-tongued judge on UK's Strictly Come Dancing and the current season of Dancing with the Stars in Australia. His many Australian friends and family have relished the opportunity to spend time once more with Craig, including me, who was so distracted catching up with all the news, darling, that I neglected to position the mic in the appropriate direction. So, apologies, the first 20 minutes sound like we're in a cave, but it's easy to listen to. Just think you're eavesdropping. It all writes itself beautifully, we come out of the cave, and you're able to enjoy our dulcet tones. Horwood is a dynamic and thoroughly engaging personality. His passion for his work is enormous, and his consideration for any art form he tackles is reverential. What a delight it was to sit down with Craig Revel Horwood. Dare one say it was fabulous. But I try and get back to Australia every single year. The only, the only time I left it for four years and I came home and everyone seemed a lot older. <laughs> and I left it sort of too long. But now with the invention of Skype, FaceTime, all of that, you don't lose track of people as much. I mean, you see them in real time, which I think is brilliant. And uh, I think that does keep people closer. Although I hate social media, uh, it's the only social media I like using because it's, um, 
as a way of keeping track of all your family and seeing what they're up to and being able to talk to them. You know, even though you are 10,000 miles away, I think it's wonderful. Making the world a smaller place. Well, it's not that so much as... The world is a small place. But know. there are certain people in our lives which we need that... Well, yeah. Regular contact. If you've got family mm. and if you want to conduct meetings as well, it's great for business, you know, as well. So I think it's um, a brilliant invention, that. But, uh, and, and that also is wonderful when you sort of arrive because you've got, you've tracked your family throughout the year, you know. But um, I couldn't come last year, that's why there's been a two year break this time because I was offered uh, the lead in a film which I filmed uh, in Coventry, which was called Nativity Rocks, and it's um, the fourth in a series of Nativity oh, they're films. Fantastic series, yeah. They're Absolutely. hilarious. Yeah. Well, they're good fun, yep. they're for kids at Christmas. Christmas. And, you know, there's always a sort of good story with it as well. You know, there's always a moral, you know, and um, I was playing, of course, the villain in it. <laughs> I seem to be typecasted. They're the villain as well. Well, yeah, they are the best parts because they're minimal and they're effective. <laughs> you know, you don't have to say very much, uh, but the impact is enormous. It's great. I love playing the villains because they are, I love a dark character and uh, there are a lot to explore, you know, acting wise, there's always a lot to explore. And bringing history to that is just brilliant. Uh, you're a Capricorn. I am. Do you believe in astrology? I sort of do, yes. I did more when I was young, less nowadays. I'm 54 now. When I was 23, in my 20s, I read tarot cards and sort of got into astrology and all of that. I was probably searching for something, though, at the time. And then when I left Australia at 23, I found myself, I suppose. So I was probably, for those three years that I was studying astrology and studying, you know, the tarot and all of that, I was probably wondering about life and asking questions to myself, really. And then I moved overseas and uh, found a whole new world that I fell in love with. And a lot of work that I totally loved as well. Well, I, I'm, I haven't normally done this for... I've never done this for an interview, but, but I was reading my research on you and it mm. said that you're Capricorn. So I thought, let me look that up. So you, a Capricorn is defined by being charming. That's true. Yeah, and wildly <laughs> Um, hard-working and an adaptable personality, which you certainly are. Yeah. You're a jack of many trades, yeah. a, a master of all of them. Um, director, choreographer, actor, TV personality, dancer, judge, the list goes on. Yeah. Um, and you are certainly hard-working. You've said yourself that you're a bit of a workaholic. Yes, it is true. Uh, Capricorns climb mountains and <laughs> try and defeat, I suppose, but in a nice way you know, in a sort of natural way. I don't um, stamp on people to get to the top. I'm not that type of person. I take what opportunities come to me, and I think that's really important. And I think that's where some people go wrong. We're offered many roads in life, and there's many turns and forks, you know, and you've got to choose either left or right, don't you? And it's making those decisions, I think, is really important, because then that becomes... Uh, your future and of course can completely change it so I think it's um, making those decisions I sort of take lightly bizarrely I don't think of them as a frustration and I don't stop at the stop sign 
I just go with my inner voice and listen to it. I listen to what my voice is saying, not reason. Sometimes the decisions I make about taking roles or the decisions I make in the rehearsal room as a director for a particular scene, you know, just choices. I think you've got to be completely open and be prepared to step onto the precipice, you know, and then jump and free flow. <laughs> I think you have to fall and land. And anyone that fears that will never get on in life, I don't think. You know, you'll you'll be at that you'll you be take risks. You'll be at that pathway mm -hmm. and the choice and um and you don't necessarily uh a lot of people take a safe option or a guaranteed option. I never do. And I think you I think you don't achieve anything in life if you're you know, if you're full of fear. I think you just have to go for it. You know, what's gonna to happen to you? You're just gonna fail. That's all. And you learn so much through failure. I think it's wonderful. You know, so I always look forward to that. I look forward to failing so I can change it, <laughs> make it better. improve and well, yeah. learn from your mistakes. Yeah, yeah. It's great. Are you a perfectionist? Because that's another trait of capital. It is. Am I a perfectionist? I would say in my mind I am, but I know the universe and I know it can't be perfect. And that's why I never really, on Strictly Come Dancing or Dancing with the Stars, hand out tens. Right. There's still I do. always room for improvement. Yeah, I think there is. And a ten, for me, a ten out of ten, perfection, is, um, is something, you know, that is personal. I think, you know, it's, an, it's a personal choice to give someone that. But nothing's ever perfect. I mean, I've seen many of my shows that have had five-star rave reviews, and I've always found imperfections in them. <laughs> I thought, ooh, I could have done that better. Oh, why did I let that go on stage? Or why didn't I make this choice? You know, sometimes it's six months later, after the event, and I've gone back to see the show and I thought, why did I do that? Clearly the story is this, you know, but sometimes when you're directing, when you're choreographing, when you're creating, you see a, a clear path and go for it, and then sometimes the story actually hits you like a light bulb in the back of the head uh, six months after the event. And sometimes it's not until you've actually played the role and then gone back to it that you fully understand that character. So it does come back to, am I a perfectionist? If I was, I think I'd be suicidal, so I'd have to say that I'm not, but I want to be. <laughs> but I continue to strive for perfection. But I know that it is actually unobtainable. What about this last trait, Capricorn trait, a traditionalist? I in your personal life, are you a traditionalist? I, well, yes, I like relationships. Yep. If that's what you mean. Yep. Uh, I like order. I like a garden. I like the stuff that human beings need, you know, like love, support, I love giving. Uh, I love receiving, I love all of those sort of things. Uh, and I think it's really important to uh, be generous in life as well, you know, and not be, and be selfless. I think that's really important. And a lot of people, certainly in life that I've come across that I don't particularly get on with, are selfish. <laughs> you know, and even some actors you know, I will, I will say to them, you know, in, in a rehearsal room, that's 
selfish um, actually for the character I mean you know and sometimes people are selfish performers which means they upstage people they do this they, they, they take the entire arc into consideration or the whole story they're only interested in their own performance or about themselves and that happens in life a lot we know that there's that great uh, quote from Konstantin Stanislavski the great acting teacher I love Stanislavski yes love the art in yourself, not yourself in the art. That's it, yeah. darling. Yeah. And um, yeah, one has to be careful not to judge oneself from afar. I call that doing a Shirley MacLaine and having an out-of-body <laughs> experience. <laughs> and I tell some actors that because that means they're not in the moment or they're failing miserably to tell the story honestly. But, um, you know, acting is like life. You know, the beauty about acting, and I think the beauty about the stage is you know what you're going to say and you know what emotions you're going to go through. In life, you don't. No. You wake up in the morning and suddenly everything's horrific and you've got to deal with it. And I love that. And I love that improvised quality. Acting's about giving that illusion. Well, yeah, quite. Yeah. But it's um, the safest sort of place to be because you know what you're doing. You know what character's going to, even if you're going to be killed, you know when you're going to be killed and how you're going to be killed. <laughs> <laughs> well, in life, if what I you just, can plan that. You just don't know, do you? Send out invites to the future. Uh, yeah, there you go. But, um, yeah, I'm sort of normal. I like becoming normal. When I was living in London, I've just recently moved out to the country in Hampshire into um, a bigger house where I'm isolated um, away from the maddening crowds. I never thought that that would be an age thing, and in fact I would have done it 30 years ago if I could afford it. <laughs> but um, I lived in London where a metre from my door was the road, you know, so uh, always surrounded by noises and things like that. So when I moved out of the country it was fantastic, and it was a dream come true, and of course you always want to share that with people as well. I mean, I don't want to live in a great big manor by myself. And plus I want to, you know, I use it for other people to stay there. And that's why I've got seven bedrooms and a swimming pool and jacuzzi and... Did you find it disturbing <laughs> when you first moved there? I mean, I go home and visit my mum in country Victoria. Yeah. And it's so dark, it's so quiet that, you know, you can hear the pulsation in your head, it's so quiet. Uh, yeah. That it's... Um... I found, I found I had difficulty sleeping. Yeah. And we're so conditioned to put up with all of those well, city the, noises. The noises, mm. yeah, completely. But then when I go back to London now, I just think, oh my God, the noise pollution is ridiculous. Mm. But yeah, I had trouble sleeping. I was sort of scared of the pitch black, the dark. Yes. I found it. Well, they get a great view of the stars. Because I had, well, that's true. Yeah. But it's pitch black. Yeah. And you know that there's animals sort of around <laughs> everywhere. Not that the animals in England kill you, right. unlike here. No. You know. But uh, yeah, I did find it alarmingly quiet. But I don't know, I think um, what, because you've tuned, certainly for 30 years I lived in London, to not even listen to it. It's amazing how the mind cannot listen, you know, how you can tune it out. It's like dancers with pain. You know, you can have bleeding feet and you could have a broken ankle, but you could still dance and not feel the pain. Yeah. It's only when you come off stage that you feel it. And it's when you get up in the morning, you go, what have I done to my body? Mm -hmm. But you still go on the next day and dance again. And it's incredible that um, you have these receptors in your mind that can shut pain down. And that's the same with hearing. You know, they call it selective hearing sometimes. <laughs> but um, yeah, I found it difficult. But um, I, I soon got used to it. It took about a month, I think, for me to totally 
get used to it now I absolutely love it yeah. I absolutely love hearing the owls you know hooting and I love hearing just you know the winds rustling through the trees and I love the sunrises I love the sunsets I love um, being able to walk around the house naked and around and no one can see except the owls I don't mind them having a bit of a perv darling <laughs> <laughs> who are they going to tell exactly <laughs> <laughs> Oh, we yeah. are funny. Oh, we are. In their own time, cracking ourselves um, up. What was it like growing up in Ballarat, country Victoria? Because Well, I hated it, and yeah. I told all of Ballarat that, but now I love it. Yeah. That's a funny thing. Because I, I was born there, but we spent very little time there as children. I have three sisters and one brother, one older sister, two younger, and then my little brother, who was um, the last of the litter, <laughs> who was born in 77, who's now sort of an old 40, bizarrely. <laughs> uh, he, well, we all were born there, except him. And um, we lived there until we were three, well, till I was three, and then we moved to England for two years because my father was in the Navy. So as a naval brat, we were moved around every two years because you get postings. Any, anyone in the services would know what that's like, uh, that you only ever spend two years at a school you might make a friend and then you have to delete them and then move on to the next school mm. and that happens every two years. So I spent two years in England, that's where I first started school and that was in a place called Fairham near Portsmouth because that's where Dad worked and he was there to do his naval training uh, as a naval officer and you have to you used to have to come over to um, Britain to do your officer training and stuff. So he did that and we were there for two years Then we moved back to Ballarat then we moved to Sydney, and Sydney was where I really consider I grew up because I went to, I was in grade three, four, then I changed schools and went to grade five and six, then I changed schools and went to high school, which was year seven and year eight, and then went back to Ballarat for year nine and year ten. And I hated Ballarat when I got back, because I'd spent... Well, you'd been in London, you'd been in Sydney, and you were going back to a, a small town. Yeah, provincial town that would have actually had in the days that I was there in the late 70s it was very homophobic and it was I mean you couldn't tell anyone that you were a dancer you couldn't tell anyone that you wore tights on the Thursday night <laughs> you know you would be bashed at school if that if that information came out I mean there was one there was one guy that had a perm at CB and Jerry's, there was a place called CB and Jerry's hairdressers, famous, famous <laughs> infamous hairdressers <laughs> in Ballarat, you know, who were openly gay. Yes. And Which was, if you think back now, it was quite extraordinary. It was amazing. A, a, a provincial town in the I, 80s and 90s. Completely, mm. completely. And um, he had a perm there and then came to school. He had to be transferred to another school. He oh, got so bullying. Bullying. Mm. Yeah, it was horrific. So, you learn very quickly to keep your mouth shut and keep yourself to yourself, you know, but uh, at school I was a bit of an introvert. I didn't like any of the people at that school. I went to Ballarat East High, it's called something else now, but uh, it was rough, you know, and plus I hadn't experienced a co-educational school. I'd been to a boys' school called Granville Boys High here in Sydney during um, just before the Granville train the massive Granville um, train disaster, disaster yeah. exactly, where the bridge struck that train, you know, and killed loads and loads of people. 
and that was the train that I would catch to school. I was to catch to school. Uh, so it was, um, I was used to a boys' school, and I sort of got used to that, because that's all I knew of high school, until I got to Ballarat. But the girls were like major bullies at this school. They were rough. They rolled their sleeves up. They wore tight um, skirts, skirt, and like and... skirts rolled up to you know their crutch level. Mm. They walked around in black boots and kicked literally the shit out of anyone that looked weak. Right. <laughs> it was horrific, absolutely horrific. I hated every minute of it. And dance was my escape from that. But of course, I couldn't tell anyone that's what I was doing. So, so you were doing classes. Yeah, I was doing classes at um, Ballarat Lyric Theatre, and the classes uh, were run by Ballarat Lyric Theatre in order to train people up, and especially boys, because they needed them for their shows. shows. And I turned up really to lose weight because I was um, bullied at school and called tits. And um, because I was a fat little kid, I'd be, I'd be excuse me, how very dare But but so that was the attraction. There, there wasn't an inner desire to to want to dance. No, it was initially to lose some weight. Yeah, to lose weight because oh, I was bullied goodness. about being fat. Yeah, because I just didn't grow. I was like a little fat kid. I was going outwards, not up. Right. And then when my class in year nine and year ten were all growing tall, people were getting. Boys were getting beards, they were getting hairy, nothing, you know, I hadn't... Because now, what are you, six foot two, six foot three? Yeah, six foot two. Right. Yeah, I, I suddenly, when I started dancing, it was probably 16 and a half, I just shot up and lost loads of weight. And I sort of, I don't know, I felt better about myself. But then that's just a natural occurrence, I think. So through life, have you battled weight? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, completely. I always thought I was fat even when I was extremely thin, and until I went to a gym to be, um, what they do, you know, was to, I wanted to gain muscle, right. because I felt like um, I was fat and had too much body fat, and I wanted... So that's psychological though, but did you ever have trouble keeping the kilos off? Yeah, yeah. I mean to the point where I ate lesser sleeves for two weeks, while I was dancing for eight hours every single day. I was. I would consider myself anorexic right. because I couldn't see it in the mirror. All I could see in the mirror in the dance studio was fat. Whether it be just a little bit around my bum or whether it be on you know the sides of my body or anywhere I looked, I felt I was fat. Even though when I look back on the photos, I was just bone. It was actually quite disgusting. But so I what, think what's driving that? Is that somebody that has said, if you want to be a dancer, you have to look like this? No, I think you compare yourself. And you compare yourself to everyone else in the mirror. I think that's always the concern. And plus, you're not speaking, you're using your body as language. And it's important. Yeah. And no one wants to be a fat dancer. I mean, they put you in white tights in ballet. No. So you can see any wobble. You know, and you'll see ballerinas are like racehorses. They have absolutely no body fat whatsoever, but they can't also be, they can't be too thickly built, you know. What's that? And everyone says, oh, I've got big bones, but actually that's not true. If you see anyone in a concentration camp, they're all, the bones are pretty much the same, <laughs> you know. Uh, 
it's what you eat that sort of makes you. But I, when the, when I was growing up as a dancer, nutrition wasn't a thing that was discussed like nowadays. Dancers are given nutritional advice. You know, they put on programs. You know, where you can actually build your body full of, you know, give your body enough carbs to dance on, and also enough protein in order to maintain muscle density. But uh, that certainly wasn't available and especially for boys, because boys were never considered anorexic, but I definitely was. Mm. And I had an eating disorder where I just couldn't, I wouldn't put anything in my mouth, you know, <laughs> because I thought it was making me fat. It was crazy. And it wasn't until I was 23 that I went to a gym and I said, my body needs sorting out. And they said, well, they said, take off your clothes. So, and I was like, <laughs> you know, because they were all, I was at a gym with muscles. Muscle memories. Muscle memories. <laughs> and I was saying, right, we're going to put you on a program. You need to put on at least 10 kilos. And that thought horrified me. It, yeah. it was horrific. I just thought, how can I do that? You know, the thought of putting ice cream in my mouth or anything that was even slightly fattening was a disaster. You know, I would live off one boiled egg a day. Or I would have, you know, I, I mean, I have friends that would, would all go on, you know, like dancers that would go on these ridiculous diets that you can't actually function on, you know. So, and that's, that's dangerous later on in life for things like osteoporosis, for all sorts of, you know, things to do with your bones. And I've had two hip replacements now. Mm. And it's probably largely due to the fact yeah, that very I was starving myself, mm. you know, as a, a teenager and into my... Like certainly in West Side Story, my first show when I was 17, you know, I was desperately thin in that. But it wasn't until I was 23 that I learned about proper nutrition and how to build up muscle. And I went and started going to the gym and started eating properly. And I learned how to do that then. And from that point on, uh, I was much happier with my body. So I went to Paris. That's why I joined the company in Paris because it was about wearing G-strings and nothing else. So this is the Lido. Yeah, the Lido in yeah. Paris, and that was literally a you know a body show. <laughs> you know, you only you didn't have to be a particularly brilliant dancer. You had to have classical. You had to look good. You had to look amazing, and you had to be tall. And the shortest person was six foot two, and that was me. So uh, my sister came to see the show, and she couldn't pick me out for lunch. Just looking for the tall one. But they were all six five, six six, and it was like they were huge, and I was a little short one, you know, in the corner. So she couldn't pick me in the show. But there are seventy dancers on stage, and plus, I don't think my family were used to just seeing me in the G string as well. So with a big, you know, fish on my head. So, oh, right. oh, good. Yeah, so, where that was going for me. Yeah, right. Um, back to Barat Lyric Theatre. You you do a few shows with them. What does community theatre do for a young person craving a career in the profession? I think it's the best thing that they could possibly do. You can work for six months learning a show and go on stage, do it, and you can see whether or not you might want to do it in the future. It's a way of trying it out. It's a way of um, self-expression. Some people just do it actually for their own well-being and for, to keep their mind sane or they've always wanted to dabble but have a full-time job and they're interested in doing something else. I think it's really important to teach children about that and the freedom of expression. I think that's really interesting and it has 
created amazing careers as well. And Ballarat Lyric Theatre, or any amateur theatre, is really essential, I think, in communities because it allows people to uh, discover themselves and to discover something new and interesting about themselves. And also, it's um, some people don't have a hobby in life as well. And I think it's really important to have something and do something for yourself. You know, mine, for instance, nowadays is cooking. I love that because I very rarely get home and I love my kitchen. I love all my gadgets and I love making stuff, you know, for people and inviting people around for, you know, dinner parties. That's one of my favorite sort of pastimes, but I live out of hotels mainly. So going home for me is a fantastic thing. And um, when people are stuck at home and that's all they do, uh, then going to the theatre or being a part of the theatre gives them an involvement not only for their mental, you know, well, wellness, but also to meet new and interesting people and become, you know, if you haven't any friends, it's like a great meeting place and it's social, like dancing, used to be in the 50s. You know, there were no mobile phones, there was no sexting or texting or <laughs> any of that. There was no grinder. There was no Tinder, you know, to meet people. So, uh, and now, obviously, people meet on internet sites, and that's how, you know, people get together, you know, rather than going to bars. That's really killed the bar scene as well, I think. Well, it has completely, but I think that it's not a bad thing. It's just technology sort of taking over, but we're all the same sort of human beasts. We're all looking for the same thing. We all want to be loved. We all want to love. And everyone wants to have sex, don't they? So uh, it's really important you know, to keep the human, you know, <laughs> humans going. Human condition. Yeah, the human condition. But it's, um, I think it's really, I think, it, you know, it's um, just a different way of meeting people. And also, I mean, this is what I'm saying about, you know, the theatre, of um, doing amateur theatre and why it's important, you know, because it is social. It's a connection between people. And you can, you don't have to be yourself. You can be someone else. And there's an escape in that. Children. It's great therapy. Children do it all the time. Playing. Naturally. Yeah. yeah. Making things up. You know, you can give them a sandpit and that will be their whole day. You know, and they'll create and they'll have imaginary people around them and they'll be talking and making up stories and, you know, creating a world for themselves. And I think that's really important to take into adulthood. I think with the responsibilities of the modern world where you know, you're forced into banking, you're forced into doing all of these mundane things that aren't really human, you know? <laughs> we should be ploughing the fields and we should be growing things and and trading carrots for onions and things like that, you know? But now it's all high finance, it's all who can get what. And it's, um, it's not... It's a, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's not... Um, it's a virtual world, I think, we live in. Yeah. None of it, for me, is real. When I walk into, um, when I walk into the theatre, I go to a different place. And that's the place I love. And I think that's why I love it. And it doesn't seem like work. And I call myself a workaholic only because that's my hobby. And that's what I love doing. So, for me, uh, it, doesn't, work at all. it doesn't feel like work. Mm. It would feel like work if it was the same every single day. If I was an accountant, I'd probably be suicidal because I'd be sitting 
in the same office, in the same chair, with the same computer screen, the only different thing would be the numbers. You know, and that would drive me insane. Whereas every day in the theatre, it's new. Even though you're saying the same lines, or you're dancing the same steps, it's always different energy because of the audience. Because you've got 2,000 people sat there in the dark, looking at you. <laughs> and it's odd, because they all react differently. You'll get laughs one night, won't get laughs the next. You know, you'll have people crying one evening, and other nights they'll be laughing. You know, so it's, it's just wonderful, because every day is organic and different, even though you're saying the same things. So when did you think that you might have the chops to join the profession? I decided I wanted to do it as a profession after seeing Cats in London and after seeing Dream Girls in New York. That's when I went, this is what I want to do. I couldn't believe when I went to see Cats that people could sing and dance and Flat act. <laughs> like, all three, brilliantly. I thought, that's what I want to do. And you did Cats eventually, didn't you? Yeah, eventually. I never got into it in Australia. I auditioned with Gerard Simons and uh, never got into it. I don't know why. It was like an odd thing. Australia was sort of... I felt like Australia was going against me. I couldn't get into Les Mis. I couldn't get into Cats. I couldn't get into, I don't know, just shows I really wanted to do. And, um, and I, could, I didn't understand why. I just thought I wasn't good enough. But then when I went overseas and I auditioned, uh, my life changed completely. I did the original um, Miss Saigon. I joined the original company after six months, but joined the original cast. And I stayed in that for literally four years and did the original cast of Crazy For You. And I didn't consider myself a tap dancer of any like real standard. Yes, I could do hop shuffle, I could do all of that, shuffle off to buffaloes, and I could do very basic time steps and things, but um, never considered myself like an amazing tapper, but that show made me into one, and it was brilliant, because I was, ended up being dance captain, I ended up teaching it to the Broadway company, I ended up going on the American tour with the Americans, I learned four different versions of it, and then put it on and mounted it in South Africa. And then it was after that experience that I came back, well, came back Macintosh, uh, he was a big producer in London and of course worldwide uh, said oh I want you to come back to Miss Saigon but this time as a resident director and that's where I learned really the ropes of looking after and being responsible for someone else's direction in a very difficult time uh, not personally but I mean in a time of the Vietnam War where it's set, and also being responsible for telling the truth. And because it was relating uh, to the IRA at the time, uh, Bosnia, like loads of different you know, bombings and wars and things were going on at the time, so it was completely related. And remembering that people from the Vietnam War are still alive, you know, and you're, you don't want to misrepresent those people by just doing musical theatre. Well, it gets back to your what we are talking about before, being authentic. Yeah, and I'm always we're looking for the truth. Yeah. And, and that's sort of where I learnt a little bit of my craft. And then I went on to assist a lot of um, fantastic directors, 
Declan Donlan was one of them from Cheek by Jowl, who uh, opened my mind up to not filling it with crap, <laughs> to not filling it at all, to being blank, which alarms most people because most people... As a creative or as a... As a creative. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, I'm making the transition from being a dancer, giving up on that after 30 because I was literally having to audition next to 16-year-olds who could get their legs higher, who could dance faster, who were better technicians. Uh, you know, And the, my body was failing me because I had a shoulder injury, things were starting to ache. You know, It wasn't as easy, and I was slowing down. So I thought, I need to do something with my life, and that's why I went into the other side, which was directing and choreographing. So um, I learned the craft, really inspirational through Susan Stroman, who did Crazy View, and I literally went up to her and I said, how do I become a choreographer? <laughs> Which was naive. But brilliant. But she if told you me. you don't ask. Yeah, if you don't ask. Yeah. You know, I just thought, how, do you, how did you become one? You know, and, and it was just by going out and actually putting yourself on the line and actually hanging your dance shoes up. So that's what I had to do. I literally had to put them in a box, tucked away, and then, um, then it all became apparent, you know, that I was actually sort of good at it and enjoyed it. So, um, so my first intro into that was, of course, in Miss Saigon as resident director. And then I moved on to other shows and then um, finally decided to go out by myself and just do it rather than be associate this or assistant that. You know, I felt ready to take on the world by myself. That year was a nightmare of a year because I only earned £9,000. So I couldn't afford my mortgage. I couldn't afford my mobile phone. So I had to give that up. I had to save 10p for phone calls. You know, I had a pocket full of 10p's just to make phone calls to people. It was horrific. And I got into debt. But um, when... Because I had to work for literally 500 quid. I had to do a musical called Pal Joey and uh, I was literally paid a pittance for it and it took up you know the better part of three months so um, but that put me on the map and I got great reviews and then suddenly directors were calling me saying oh can you choreograph this can you choreograph that and then I got sick of directors telling me what to do so I cut oh. them out <laughs> and I said I'll direct it myself darling and I'll choreograph it so um, that's what I did and, and yeah, it was great successes with things like Spin, Spin, Spin. Oh, yeah, and, fantastic. Um, no, I had great success. My one it. and only, a couple yeah. of Olivier nominations. Yeah, no, it was great. Yeah. It was fantastic. And I really enjoyed it. And it wasn't like going to work at all. But I was taught, you know, uh, to walk into work with an empty head. And I think that scares a lot of people. You know, I have no... So that you... I do no preparation. Right. But you're going to embrace the collaborative experience with the people that you work with. I get in touch with what is being told... <laughs> It's a lot of people work out, oh, these are the counts. I've got five counts of eight here, one count of four. There's a 12 bar here. There's this, there's that. And I literally walk in with no idea of what I'm going to do. But you've informed yourself, haven't you? You've done some research and... Well, I read, yes. yes. I read the script, but not overread it. Right. I read it once. Right. And people ask me questions, I have to answer them. And that's a funny thing. It is great. I love that. What's your rehearsal room like? I open it completely. I get them to empty their heads completely, and Declan Donlan taught me that. I love that 
approach that people... It, it's so you don't come in with your real life. It's so you're open and open to creativity and open to putting in your mind stuff that will help you in the play rather than the stuff that we go through or the crap that we've done in the morning like you've accepted a phone call you might have got the kids to school you've had to make them lunch you've had to do this um, the bank manager's calling you've got the wolves at the door knocking uh, you know everyone comes into the rehearsal room with some trauma that you have to get rid of so that's the first thing I do I empty their heads well, you can't, can't work freely, can you? If, uh, no, but some people... You're carrying that baggage. Unfortunately, they all do. They yeah. all, every actor I know comes into the room full of baggage. And you have to empty that. So um, that's sort of what I do. And then I love Nurture Embrace, unlike I do on as a judge. You know, I think that is a completely different and separate scenario, being a judge on a TV show, <clears throat> because you've got to judge what you see in literally one minute... 10 and you've got 10 seconds in which to do it and it's got to be headlines so you've got to speak in a different tongue and plus you're judging I'm not there to teach love nurture embrace like I do and also I haven't employed these people on the dancing show you know I'm just judging them <laughs> so uh, when I've employed someone I've gone through a whole audition process I really want that person and I really want that person to play that role and I'm gunning for them from the beginning. And I want them to be the best that they can be. And that's what I do. I bring them into the rehearsal room. And they say, okay, we're all equal. There are no leads. There are no principles in this production. We are all making a story come to life. That's it. Your part will be this. Your part will be that. And this is where you come in. And this is how you gear change it. Everyone's important and as important as each other. I think that's the essential thing. Uh, because you can't create any play with egos. Oh. You can't. And as soon as anyone becomes ego-applied, I take them out of the rehearsal room. I've done that before with huge stars. I've removed them, actually, from the rehearsal room. I've removed them from the call sheet <laughs> and I've given them their own separate call by themselves to see how they like acting by themselves right. without other people around to play off. Make a point. Well, no, it just teaches, it teaches them that they need everyone in the room, whether it be the 50 strong uh, ensemble uh, opera chorus you can't sing alone, no. <laughs> you know? Well, yeah. you can, but you won't last very long. Yeah. And especially in opera, when you need the opera chorus, you can't tell, turn around and tell them they're a pile of shit. <laughs> you? no. You've got to, you know, accept that everyone has their part to play. Yeah. And it's fully supported, you know, in that way. So, uh, yeah, I've had to teach divas not to be divas because it doesn't wash with me. And I don't, I don't um, like children stamping their feet and demanding because that's not what it's about and I get a lot of people that do do that the true 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 stars that I've worked with like um, Dame Judi Dench uh, for instance Maggie Smith all of those will just do as they're told I literally said to um, 
Judy, I said, oh, darling, would you mind taking that stool off after you've said, you've sung Send in the Clowns? Oh, yeah, that's fine. You know, but then, like, Cameron McIntosh would come up and say, Craig, you can't be Judy Dench, Dench, Judy Dench, take a stool off and tear off the stage. I said, well, everyone else is doing it. <laughs> and she didn't mind. We shouldn't say boo to a goose. I mean, she, yeah. you know, she was fine with it. That's just part of it, part and parcel of how I was operating you know, the rehearsal room. And the same with Julie Andrews. You know, these people already know they're talented. It's the people that um, I have difficulty with uh, are the wannabes, you know. Uh, they strive too hard, really. So, you know, as a director, as a person, it's our job, I think, to do that in life as well. You know, you have to listen to people and respect them and go for it and teach them you know, how I, well, that's how I work in the rehearsal room. Everyone is equal. And I can't bear all of that diva acting. No, can't stand it. You can't get anywhere. You can't be creative. It's just, it's someone that's in fear and terrified. And that's what you have to sort of understand with people. You have to learn to embrace their terror and then calm them down and say, everything will be all right. Just let your mind go. You know? Do you read your reviews? Yeah. Yeah. And, and how, hilarious. Much, how much do you invest in those reviews? I don't. I, well, I think they're funny. I read them like a comic strip. I have been slated. I have been glorified and lionised. I have been, you know, I've sort of been everything. You know, so I think if you read them and you believe the good ones, then you have to accept that there will be some terrible one-star ones as well. You know, everyone's entitled to their opinion. And um, I quite like them because actually I learned something from them because it's someone's opinion. And people, uh, you don't know who you can trust <laughs> you know, in this world as well, especially in, you know, the showbiz business. People will say one thing to your face and then you'll overhear a conversation. They're slagging your direction off or they're slagging you off. <laughs> so... Uh, it's quite interesting. I find out a lot about my shows that way. You know, I think, oh, sometimes I totally agree. I think, yep, that was my thought exactly. You know, or, uh, yeah, that's true, but I couldn't change it. Or I could maybe do that next time I redirect it. You know, I think, you know, sometimes you, I listen to them. But it's only one person's opinion. You know, some people... Uh, Certainly, I've had reviews where I've had five stars and one star, and I love that. I hate the three-star ones. <laughs> Anyone <laughs> sat on the fence, so just going, well, no, you yeah. haven't made an impact. Mm. You know, I'd rather everyone hate me and mm. boo me off the stage mm. rather than uh, just be a polite applause. You know, I don't think, you know, that's certainly not me. I like um, always, well, like I do in life, it's either I'm full on or not at all. Are you superstitious in the theatre? I mean, when you're directing or performing, do you have a, an opening night ritual? No. I walk under ladders. I turn and whistle. <laughs> I do everything they're not meant to do. <laughs> uh, no, I'm not. I don't have a ritual except for um, warming up. <laughs> That's it. That's it. I totally believe in warming up. I, do, I can't go on stage cold, and I have to have stepped on the stage. Is that a ritual? Is that a superstition? Not really. I sort of do slightly worry about the technicians that they've tightened all the bolts on the lighting. That, that's the only thing I, I think 
maybe something's going to come and fall on my head, but you know, if it does, it does. Be a good way to go, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, your fame in the UK has given you the opportunity to embrace a, uh, a very English tradition in the pantomime. Yeah. You've done quite a few of them. Yes, I have now. I was you obviously enjoy that because of the, the audience participation. Well, it's great because it's one time that you can break the fourth wall. It's, there's not many shows that I've ever done as an actor where you can actually talk to the audience and drop character. That's what's fun about it. And it's completely, a lot of the time, improvised. I mean, yes, you have a script to work around, but you can sort of... You can throw ideas out to the nation in that way. You know, you can get back at them. And I love playing the evil one because I can tell them all to shut up or what would you know? Well, what's it, vile. <laughs> evil stepmother and yeah, the Captain wicked, Hook. Yeah, Captain Hook. All the, all the evil characters. No, I haven't done... I won't do anything sort of la di da skippy <laughs> nice. You know, I, I love playing the Wicked Queen and Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. That's brilliant because she is, you know, this woman who is terrified of age and terrified of anyone being more beautiful than her. And that's <laughs> it's my real life story, <laughs> But it's funny. It's funny because people see, see me on the telly as this Mr. Nasty judge. But then, of course, it's all geared towards, you know, my sayings and um, one-liners and stuff like that. And it's really good fun to be able to communicate with an audience. Not only that, and the reason why I really love doing Panto is because it introduces children to the theatre. You know, they're three-year-olds who are fascinated, you know, and it's interactive. You know, you can, you can react to it, you can shout out, you can boo, you can hiss, you can laugh aloud, you can repeat phrases, you can sing along, you know, and, it's, and I think it involves children in a human way. And hopefully hooks them for life. Well, yeah, I think it teaches them that actually theatre can be fun. Mm. Theatre can be interactive, like you are with your computer screen. You know, kids on their tablets now, it's the only thing that shuts them up. You know, they don't go and play on the street anymore. Considered too dangerous, I suspect. Remember, that was with the same generation. You'd grow up kicking the footy on the road. That's it, yeah. Or going out for a game of cricket or going it, out for you, something. You, you just know, had to be home before fly. the streetlights went off. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and for dinner, because you're always starving. So, you know, everyone wanted to get home for that. But, um, but now it's about iPads and it's about computer games and it's less uh, human. You know, and I think Panto brings that to kids and they generally always remember their first show and their first pantomime you know and I think that's really good for you know in educating children for the future and keeping the theatre alive there are so many beautiful theatres that end up as car parks and um, or blocks of flats and I think that's a real shame you know and I don't want it as an art form to die out so I think by doing Panto, obviously the money is very good, don't get me wrong, but it's also fun and it's also educational. Because there's always a moral to every single story, like there is with the Disney film, hmm. you know? And I think it teaches not only the moral of the story, that you can't go around and kill someone, you can't hurt people's feelings. If you do, there's a price to pay. It teaches you a lot of stuff, good stuff, human stuff. And it's a lot of fun. And uh, there's no malice in it. And that's, uh, you know, the, there's a lot of 
in the world now, there's a lot of cursing, there's a lot of films that are violent, you know, all of that sort of stuff, you know, and, the, and kids' heads are full of that, you know, war games that they play on their computers. And um, it's just so nice to be able to do something that actually touches people's hearts, minds and souls and, um, and hopefully keeps them involved in theatre for the rest of their life. How did uh, Strictly Come Dancing come about? That came about because I'd um, received awards and things like that, accolades in the theatre, and they were looking for director choreographers or choreographers uh, that hadn't done ballroom and Latin, and that was me. Even though it was a ballroom and Latin show, they didn't want a whole panel of judges that had one opinion, you know, or of the same opinion. And they wanted people from all different walks of life to be the four judges. So I was chosen, I went for a screen test and I watched a little monitor and on that monitor were people dancing who I'd never seen before. One woman was from the news, a newsreader and uh, a, a professional dancer. And I said, whoever that guy is, darling, you know, in my interview, I said, whoever, because I said, oh, just explain that. And I said, whoever that guy is, he's got the bogus legs I've ever seen. I mean, you could drive a truck through his legs. They never come together. <laughs> and I said, as for her, darling, she couldn't even walk down the stairs. And when she got on the floor, it was all a complete, an absolute disaster. And then they said, can you sum it up? Um, you know, truncate it, sum it up in three words. I said, yeah, dull, dull, dull. And I got the job. So were they looking to cast... Uh a judge who was the villain at that time? or They probably were, but I had no idea about it. Right. I just came in and I was my directorial self. And they put the cast together out of our interviews. But that particular uh, clip I was watching on the monitor uh, was a woman called Natasha Kaplinsky, who was a newsreader, and Brendan Cole, who is now quite a famous dancer in you know, in London and, of course, the UK and um, New Zealand. And they went on to win the show. So, you know, how wrong I sort of was at know? the time. <laughs> and plus, the first show that we ever did was scripted. Right. So we had lines, you know, and they were our own lines from what we'd said in the interviews when we looked through all the monitor stuff. So that's sort of the way they were going with it. And then I got booed immediately, and only because that is uh, universal in the UK. <laughs> you know, hiss the, the villain, hiss the villain, boo the villain. Yeah, right. and so, was that disconcerting at first? If people were booing you, uh, yeah, yeah, because you had you'd certainly not. I had pantos. Yet, I hadn't like experienced that, really. it at all. Right. I'd never been to a pantomime, let alone been in one, and let alone been the villain. But um, I guess I was. Yes, I was, I was made the villain from that moment. But I never have to really play the villain. I do when I'm on stage, but when I'm on the TV series, I don't have to because the dancing's generally so bad. <laughs> <laughs> There's so much wrong with it. You can't expect, you cannot expect uh, a celebrity to come in and learn something that took all of us since the age, you know, since an early age, our lifetime to achieve. It's but, never going to happen. But you've been called TV's Mr. Nasty and rude mm. and acid-tongued. Yeah. Is there a way that you could soften that feedback or 
it doesn't attract ratings, I guess. And I don't care. I just am who I am, and I just be honest and tell them the truth. Whether people like that or not is up to them. I couldn't care less. But it's a huge part of the show now, isn't it? It's only you, my, uh, but it's only my opinion. Yeah. You know, and then other people's opinion, you might say, oh, yeah, but I really like that dance. Well, that's their opinion. You know, but I always ask people, especially on Twitter and things like that, if they're particularly nasty, uh, I will ask them how much dance experience do they have to qualify what they've just said, you know. And I challenge anyone to tell me I'm wrong on what I say. How... how do you have much contact with the celebrities that no. are contestants? You don't. You're quite separate. No, not at all. I don't see them before the show. I see... I, I didn't meet any of them on day one here in Dancing with the Stars Australia. And it wasn't until week two that I bumped into a few of them at the bar for a drink. And that's sort of it. <laughs> and now I'm, now I'm working with them. This week, obviously, I'm working with them because... I have to dance with them. So, you know, but I'm only meeting them for the first time, really. But they're a great bunch, you know. And, and they're obviously prepared before they come onto the show that there's well, going to be some harsh criticism. And Well, like I am when I go on MasterChef. When I went on MasterChef in 2007, I had to take criticism and I took it. I went, oh, yeah, you're right. That was terrible. Yeah, I burnt that bit. Yeah, I did put too much salt in that. Sorry, I won't do that again. What can I do? And then I'll ask questions. What can I do to get me through to the next round? And they will tell you. And you it know, gets back to being a But if you say, look, I'm great, I'm fabulous, you know, yeah. why are you telling me that? Well, actually, they're telling me that because it's actually true and they need to do something about it. And that's what I say to any celebrities that come on the dancing show. You know, you're there to learn to dance, not to just be a popularity contest. Yes, of course it's that, but that's only 50% of it. Yeah. Of course it's going to be a popularity contest, you know, but I got through on Celebrity Masterchef to become runner-up through determination and hard work and listening to the judges. And it gets back to you, don't walk on a stage unless you're prepared to be reviewed. Quite. Yeah. Don't put yourself out there. Or you, don't take the money. And I, to, I do remind them, uh, you are under contract, you are actually being paid for this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Go to work, do the best that you can. If you don't want to do that, then... Cop the flag. Yeah, cop the flag. Yeah. You've had to deal with quite a bit of trolling in the UK. Yes. Because of that screen persona, I guess. Yeah. Does that play with your head? How does that affect you? Uh, like a comic strip. Although I came off Facebook because of it, because they were saying some particularly nasty things, and people don't know when to stop when they're self-publishing. I have written four books, three of which are have had extra chapters as well, so it's sort of seven books all in all. And I have an editor, and I have a publisher, who are all responsible, who put the money up to, you know, for me to write this book and to get money back from it. So they publish and edit. People that are on Twitter are generally illiterate. They don't know how to spell. They don't know how to put two or three words in a sentence. And they wouldn't know where a full stop was or an exclamation mark was, you know. Uh, and they think they can just publish. And Twitter and all of those, Instagram, are publishing. You know, and I think, in uh, yes, I'm up for freedom of speech. But, you know, the trolls on there that 
have absolutely no right to say what they're saying or spreading vicious rumours or untruths is, you know, I think a disgrace. And they should be, I think, jailed. I really do. Yeah. Hiding behind a computer screen. And yeah. The, the jugglers, really. If you, if you go in for the juggler, which I, which I have sometimes, um, I always go in nicely and say, oh, that's very kind of you. Thank you for watching the show. You're obviously watching the show. So thank you for being part of the show. And I appreciate your comments. Bye-bye. And then they've got you. A lot of people do it in order to get your attention, in order for you to write back to them. But um, I came off things like Facebook because I was being trolled and people saying really nasty things about myself and my partner, which I thought was, was absolutely disgusting. So I thought, I don't actually need to put up with this because it would never end up in a paper. It would never end up like that in a magazine because there were laws about publishing <clears throat> and about lying. You know, it's blasphemy. Mm. And it's also, um, what do you call it? It's not only blasphemy. It's um, people doing... Slander. Slander, mm. yeah. Loads of newspapers. Well, News of the World, for instance, went down for the whole, for all of that, for making up lies about celebrities mm. and people. Mm. And, of course, that's how it should be. You've become known and occasionally imitated for very unique locutions. Dance disaster. Oh, yes. Cha-cha-cha. Cha-cha-cha. Fab-u-less. And there is a reason... Um, where have they come from? They came from me having to speed up. Generally, on the show, we have two minutes in which to speak. And that means 30 seconds each for each judge, if we've got four judges. In Dancing with the Stars Australia, it's three judges. So we've got a little bit more time to speak. But there is two minutes allocated to the judging section. Uh, sometimes another judge will go on for a minute 30. Then the next judge will go on for 30 seconds. Therefore, the two minutes has gone. So I'm told, I'm given the wind-up signal, which means I have time for one word that says it all. And that's where Fab you less came from. And Amazing, that came because I had nothing else to say. So you turned one word into three. I had three. to take, yeah, turn one word into three just to spread it out a little bit longer. But it's now used in schools in, as part of the curriculum for learning syllables. Oh, great. Yeah, yeah. That's it's fabulous. Yeah, it's incredible. Oh, it I've also, see, I've also... Um, created a word, armography, that's now in the Milan Dictionary. It waited three years before it could go in. But it's called armography, which is the choreography of the arms. Right. Oh, okay, right. Okay, fabulous. And now that's a word. And absolute filth, something that's really, really good. I love. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, it's just, I think... But it's masterful branding as well, because we hear that. And we well, like, yeah, but I don't think, think of it like that. That's just accidental, bizarrely, because right. I'd say that in real life. Right. You know, uh, and that's all be, come from being fabulous and well, I think, and yeah, and being a drag queen in Australia yes. for all those years, and then reinventing myself as an evil queen, I suppose, in Panto over there. You know, you come out with things that are just fun, and they're fun. You know, that's it, and they're quick and they're to the point, and they they are what they seem. You know, if, if it's a dance disaster, I mean, now people finish 
my words for me, I don't actually have to speak. Literally 20,000 people at the O2 on tour. I go, that was a complete dance, and then I can just shut up, and the entire 20,000 people go, disaster. <laughs> and they love it. <laughs> or I go, That's fantastic. One word, three syllables. Yeah. And the whole 20,000 people go, fabulous. <laughs> it's unbelievable. <laughs> it's sort of insane. And the first time it happened was on stage. I went, oh, that was complete. And the whole audience just filled it in. I thought, actually, this might work on tour. And it did. Brilliant. It's funny. I mean, because I think the show, it's given me a, an amazing platform on which to stand. Number one, I hate celebrity. Number two, I never ever wanted to be a celebrity. The only thing I wanted to be was Marsha Hines when I was growing up. Uh, only because I loved her voice and I wanted to, you know, sing. Without <laughs> like you. Yo! <laughs> <laughs> you know. Uh, and so I never really you know, wanted to be famous or had a hunger to be famous. I wanted to just be in shows and dance, you know, and sing and act. But along with that comes this fame thing. And I hate it. I think it's absolutely awful. You lose sort of all your rights as a human being and everyone owns you in the street. And um, I think the best thing and the only thing that can be done with it is... Uh, to raise money for charities. It's only good that has come out of it, really. The fact that you can actually get on a platform and inform people uh, about, like, the Royal Osteoporosis Society, of which I'm patron, you know, with um, the Duchess of Cornwall, or Camilla, probably known as it. Camilla. Camilla. Camilla Parkable. <laughs> so we, you know, she's the president yeah. of that, and I am patron, and we work together to teach people about it, about bone health and all of that. And that's something I can do from experience and some good I could actually give back to the community. That's right, it gives you a platform. Yeah, to, and I've raised personally £350,000 for it, which is, what, I don't know, $600,000 here in Australia. So it's, it's good. Mm. And I wouldn't have been able to do that before, Without celebrity. Without it. Mm. So uh, it's really great to be able to do that. And also had bursaries... To have the Craig Revel Hallwood Award for the Ballarat Arts, you know, uh, Foundation, uh, to be able to support all of those kids coming up and pay for them, I think is good. So I'm doing something with the money. That's not just all about me and my swimming pools and my mansion <laughs> and my new vineyard that we're planting. <laughs> but that's wine for the community, isn't it? It is indeed. Yeah, so it'll be good. You go back to the UK to play Miss Hannigan. I do. Annie. Indeed. Um, are you the first man in the world to play no. Miss Hannigan? Paul O'Grady played Hannigan, I think, in the 80s, the early 80s, something like that, but sort of on the back of Lily Savage. Right. Very different. Uh, I play her for real, like as a, as a real woman, trying not to get sprung, you know, without lying. So I'm, everyone knows it's me as I burst through the double doors in lingerie. And it gets a big laugh, which is exactly what you don't want. But that laughter calms down as soon as I open my mouth and start the play. And people adjust to... Yeah, adjust Craig to Craig Revel Hallward, looking like that, but then they have to buy it. It's the hardest thing. It's like getting around... 
you know, as you burst through at the wrong end. Uh, <laughs> it's that what should be a round of applause is always, oh my God, what does he look like? You know, I think because she's an old drunk, you know, and she's haggard, but she's a wonderful character. I love her. I think she's wonderful. Do you have much in common with Miss Hannigan? Yeah, I like Jen. <laughs> she loves Jen a bit too much. <laughs> and she's looking for love, and I've found it. You know, um... What about kids? Yeah, I love kids. She loves kids too, but she just doesn't want them in her life. That's all she can, all she can see, is that that is the Well, that's her, her way life. to get an income, isn't it, really? Well, her only way. Her only way of income. Yeah. And you can guarantee the government are paying her, you know, to look after them. Otherwise, how could she afford the gin? And she doesn't brew it herself. You've done it before on tour, haven't you? Yeah. I created the role with this particular production. production, And that was three years ago. Then I, well, I went on tour for five months with it, which was absolutely fantastic. Then Leslie Joseph took over for me. And I was doing it at the same time as Strictly Come Dancing. So every Saturday night... Uh, Leslie would do my Saturdays and uh, and then I would do the rest of the shows and generally eight shows a week and then I went into the West End following Miranda Hart who was playing it and then I did that for ten weeks which was absolutely fantastic at the same time as learning Panto and doing Strictly so um, Saturday nights were for the understudy which was fantastic because that gave her an opportunity to say oh, I'm on on Saturdays. You know, she gets the Saturday afternoon and the Saturday night, which I thought was great because she can invite producers, she can yeah. invite agents, see her, work. see her work, you know, and actually know when she's going to be on. Because I was found as an understudy in the West End. You never knew when you're going to be on. And by the time you get to the theatre, it's too late to invite anyone, you know, if you're playing the lead. So um, I always found that a huge frustration, but sort of good for them. And I'm going back to do it now for another 10 weeks. So... It has been great that I can go in and out of it. And plus, I sort of miss her, so it'd be nice to get back to her, you know, because uh, she's such a wonderful character to play, and the cast is so amazing. I mean, the kids, there are three sets of children, and they're all extraordinary, and the Annies are just incredible actors. Brilliant. It's not like working with children. It's like working with an adult. You know, and they listen. They really listen, and they really react. You know, I thought... Ugh. It's going to be like acting by numbers. But actually, they're amazing. The but it's extraordinary, isn't it? These little souls who have yep. such adult heads on their yep. shoulders. Yeah, incredible. And the intelligence to sort of drive a line and be truthful. Six-year-olds. Yeah. yeah. You know, the little mollies are incredible. Absolutely incredible. And they're not, um, they're not too stagey. You would imagine everyone's going to be like Bonnie Langford. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Yeah. A precocious little brat, yes. you know, with a mother that pushes you on stage. In Gypsy. Gypsy, yeah, yeah. Rose Lee, mm. that sort of thing. But no, uh, they're absolutely incredible. And if they're not, they're not employed. So I think uh, it's a really great cast and I very much look forward to going back to it. And it's sort of, as much as I miss my home and I'd love to go home for a month as well and spend a month at my house, that'd be really cool. But... <laughs> um, so the West, having the a West End is a bad alternative. Oh, that's good. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. it's all fantastic. Sort I'm of very lucky in life because I get the best of sort of everything. Yeah. Um, 
So one day will we get to see Craig Revel Hall, which is Dolly Levi? Um, following Danny LaRue. He did that in the Palladium, didn't he? Mm. West End. I don't know. It would be a sort of good role, I think, to play and a great sing. Mm. Uh, but I, I don't have any ambition to no, do that. if it happens, it happens. Yeah, it's like I never had any ambition to be Miss Hannigan, but that sort of worked out and it was accepted. It could have gone horribly wrong. It was like standing on a cliff and about to jump. It was one of those. I thought to myself before opening night, what am I doing? <laughs> but I fell in love with her and then all of that fear went away. You know, it was only, it was momentary. And um, I'm very lucky to have been given the opportunity to do it and play these sort of characters. And villains I love, you know, I created like in Nativity Rocks, that was completely improvised, there was no script at all. Is that released? When's that released? It's been released in the UK. Right. Uh, it was released in November in the UK. I don't know when that's so going to we'll be. So we'll catch it here. It'll be on Netflix, I'm yeah, sure, anyway. Yeah. Germany, all the, the other three nativities are on Netflix. Yeah. But, uh, you know, that was a great, interesting way of working because I'd never done that before. Well, number one, I've never been a lead in a movie, a full feature film. Uh, I did Paddington 2 with Hugh Grant. Which was brilliant. That, I loved that. that, that I mean, the that finale, the choreography in the prison. Well, it's like a little finale at the end, but it was like a really expensive shoot, you know, and it was like in a box at the end, but great, because it's uh, six months later, of course. So that was good. I loved that. And then, um, and then I was offered this uh, lead role in as the villain, you know, that the children have to hate. Yeah. So, uh, in Nativity, and I absolutely loved it. It was brilliant. Because we didn't know from one day to the next what scene I was doing or where we were in the play. The only time I knew the story was actually when I sat down with all the other actors for the premiere. <laughs> and we were going, anyone know? Okay. How's it work out? No, yeah, we had no idea what the story was. We just had to commit to a scene and then play it three different ways. Brilliant. It was amazing. Mm. absolutely amazing with not a character in our head not a name in our head the first time I learnt my name in the movie was when I checked into the hotel what was the name? Emmanuel Cavendish right yeah Very. Emmanuel Cavendish I went oh and then I said welcome Emmanuel Cavendish like to your room you know who gets on the telly and, mm. Then, mm. and then it became a reality when I walked to my caravan like my trailer <laughs> It was written there, Emmanuel Cavendish. I went, oh. okay, so that's who I am. Brilliant. But you went in with an open mind. You have to. To create. You have to. Yeah. Because I didn't know what I was going to say. Right. Until the cameras were rolling. It was bizarre. It was bizarre. And I loved it. Mike Lee works exactly like that. All right. It's exactly how he works. But he gives you an indication of character. Like if you're playing a lawyer for him. You have six months to go and learn to be a lawyer. Right. But there is no script. It's all improvised. Yeah. Yeah. But you have to know your stuff. I mean, I did... I knew the film was set in Coventry, so I did a lot of reading about Coventry and stuff like that. So I could crack some funny things or annihilate Coventry or fall in love with Coventry, whatever was needed. I needed the good, the bad, the ugly of everything, you know, so be sort of... It was great. I loved it. And I said that I definitely want to do that again. 
because it was so much fun. It wasn't like working at all. It was nerve-wracking as it was, because a song was written for me that I had to learn the night before and then perform to a thousand people. Wow, wow. It was frightening. Yeah. <laughs> but it keeps you on edge. It keeps the mind going, doesn't it? And it's a brilliant life. So I'm very lucky. Well, I know I speak for many people to say it's lovely to see you back in Australia and uh, to catch up with you. And, um, and, and thanks for your time this afternoon because I know you've got a terribly busy schedule. I have. But it's nice to see another boy from Ballarat and, um, yeah. and have a chat. It's great. Yeah. It's been wonderful, Peter. Thanks so much for thanks. inviting me on your gorgeous show. Gorgeous, is it? Fab, you must, darling. And not a disaster in any way, shape or char, char, char. Thank you.